This week, fear and anxiety took up residence in our country. Some of us are feeling the weight of it more severely than others. Whether you're worried about your investment portfolio or your hourly wages, the economic outlook seems grim. We wrestle with how to protect the lives of our parents and our grandparents who are the most susceptible ones to this novel virus. Students who love nothing more than a good snow day now wonder what it will be like to go for perhaps a month or even longer studying alone without that dynamic energy of peers in the classroom. Parents are struggling with how to care for school-aged children if schools are closed for weeks or even months. The unknown leaves all of us grappling for answers. While the event we face now is unprecedented in most of our lives, the people of faith have, since the beginning of time, turned to God and the community of faith to sustain them during times of crisis. And so today, you and I join our spiritual ancestors in seeking God's guidance for these troubled times. Our scripture lesson from the Gospel according to Matthew comes from that famous Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus. During this sermon, Jesus says six times, Now you have heard it said, and then he shares something, and he says, But I say, and Jesus is challenging the conventional wisdom. He invites all of us to live a deeper kind of spirituality. Do you remember C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? In that book, the children open a closet and they push aside the clothing that is hanging in the closet and behind the clothes there is a passageway to a whole nother world, the world of Narnia. And what I picture Jesus doing is pushing back the ordinary stuff of life and inviting the people into this whole other world. There is more to this life than meets the eye. There is more to being a follower of God than simply following a set of rules. In today's scripture from Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It seems to me that Jesus is asking for the impossible. Love your enemies? Really? Who could do that? At the most recent national prayer breakfast, Arthur Brooks was the keynote speaker. He is the former president of American Enterprise, a conservative think tank. Brooks talked about these very words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that currently our country is being ripped apart by political polarization. Quoting a 19th century philosopher named Schopenhauer, he defined contempt as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. And then he asked, how do we break all of us? How do we break that habit of contempt? 
Some people, he said, say that we just need more civility and more tolerance. And I say nonsense because civility and tolerance are a low standard. Jesus didn't say to tolerate your enemies. He said, love your enemies. Answer hatred with love. Now, these words from Brooks, they make a lot of sense to me. They resonate, but you and I both know that we cannot just will ourselves to love our enemies. It doesn't work that way. It takes more than simply trying. One of the reasons that we hate our enemies is because we're afraid of them. The Israelis are afraid of the Palestinians and vice versa. The Hindus are afraid of the Muslims in India. But enemies are not only those on a national or a political scale. Enemies can also be personal. We're afraid of a former boyfriend who could still hurt our heart. We are afraid of a business partner who will financially ruin us. We are afraid of a political nemesis who will spew venom about us. We fear what we cannot control, what we cannot manage, and that is why the coronavirus is causing us so much panic. We are afraid of what is unknown, and we don't want to be hurt. And in the midst of these fears, we are called by Jesus to do what most often feels impossible, to love. The poet Wendell Berry says, hate has no world. The people of hate must try to possess the world of love, for it is the only world. It is heaven and earth. I remember when Wendell Berry spoke here a few years ago, I picked up Wendell and his wife from the airport and took them to lunch, and I was so nervous to be in the presence of this great literary mind and yet, Wendell and his wife were such simple, humble, down-to-earth people. Not an ounce of arrogance about them. They just seemed to embody this world of love, chattering on about their family and their farm and their home church and their dreams. Such ordinary people. You know, this famous author, Wendell Berry, he wrote all those books, dozens and dozens of books, without a computer. He had no connection to any social media. And so maybe today he is unaffected by the current shift in the world climate, living at home in his farmhouse in a world of love. What about us? How will you and I live in a world of love during these unprecedented times? In January, my husband's nephew, Jared, was sworn in as a general in the United States Army. He is one of the youngest generals ever, still in his mid-40s. And it was a great honor to attend the ceremony where he was sworn in, and we were amazed by all the pomp and circumstances. But even more impressive than the ceremony was what happened at the after party back at his home on the military base where the family gathered in a relaxed setting and some very dear friends of his from the military stopped by to visit. And one of the men who came by was a retired army man who had served with Jared in Afghanistan. 
and they had become very close friends. And so just standing around casually, we asked this retired army man, hey, what was it like to work with Jared in the field? And he began to laugh. And we said, well, what, what is it? And he said, well, Jared is always dreaming up some grand scheme, some project, and I'm the one that had to implement it. And we said, well, like, give us an example. And he said, well, I remember the time when we were in Afghanistan. And we were stationed out in the middle of nowhere, and there really wasn't anything for us to do. We had a lot of time on our hands and very little action. And with us was a wealth of talent, engineers of various types. And we had lots of tools and machinery with us. And Jared noticed that the children in that region of Afghanistan were not going to school because the bridge across the river had been bombed. And in order to go to the school, they had to go an extra four miles out of their way. And so most of the children weren't going. And so Jared ordered those engineers on the project, board engineers, to come together. And he ordered additional supplies. And they built that bridge so that the kids could go to school. And do you know that we have spent hours and hours and hours with Jared at family reunions over the years, and he had never once mentioned this to us. Because Jared is that kind of guy. He looked out at those children in Afghanistan, and he didn't see foreigners. He didn't see people who were of a different religion from him. He did not see enemies. He saw children of God. Jared knew in his gut what Jesus preaches from the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus tells them how this impossible feat of loving one's enemies is very much possible. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of God, children of your Father in heaven, for God makes the sun, his son, it says, to rise on the good and the evil. And God sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Jesus tells us that God's love and God's mercy is for all people. And we are invited then to participate in God's love for all of God's children. When we pray for those who persecute us, it is impossible for us to not take a pause and see them for even a moment from God's vantage point. During this uncertain season of fear and challenge, all of us are invited to be bridge builders. We can build bridges across religious and political and national divides. We can pick up the phone and call a relative we can reach out to someone that we've lost touch with. We can offer to pick up groceries for an elderly neighbor. We can write a note to a friend or offer to care for someone's children so that they can go to the hospital and work on the front lines and their children can be safe. Or we can offer to hire someone who is out of work during this difficult time. We can participate by building partnerships with those whom in the past we may have seen as our enemies. 
You see, the reason that Jesus can ask us to love our enemies, the reason that he demanded such an impossible love is because Jesus loved us when we did not deserve it. I like the way that theologian Stan Stanley Hauerwas puts it. God refused to let our sin prevent him from becoming one of us. You and I are able to love in impossible ways because when you and I were impossible to love, Jesus loved us anyway. God sees each one of us as God's beloved child. The sun shines upon us and the rain falls upon us. And when we turn away from God, when we betray our calling to be God's children, when we make our own terrible mistakes and hurt one another, God's love for us takes the form of the cross. When the human race was in the position of God's enemy, God's holy and divine love persisted, and it persists now. Hauerwas says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be ready to be reconciled with those with whom we are angry, to be faithful in marriage, to take the time required to tell the truth. All of these are habits that create the time and space to be capable of loving our enemies. Someone has said that what we are going through right now almost feels like it's a time of war. We don't know how long it will last or whose lives will be lost. Stores are closing. Fear seeps in. Panic knocks at the door. My favorite passage is from Romans 8, which says, Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, no virus, no pandemic, nothing. All week long, I have been remembering this image that comes to us about World War II. It is from a novel called Beneath the Scarlet Sky, but the novel is based on a true story about a boy named Pino. Pino was growing up in Italy, and he was 17 when his parents decided that it was no longer safe for him to stay in the city, and they sent him out to live in a Catholic community on the border between Italy and Switzerland. He began smuggling Jewish people who were fleeing Italy across the Alps. They went out in the middle of the night on a very treacherous road that was extremely dangerous and icy, and they had to really be careful that they were not detected by the border patrol. And Pino became very adept at navigating this icy ledges. And one day, he was assigned a group of Jewish people to usher to safety. And there was a young woman in the group who was pregnant and had worked as a professional violinist in the symphony. She was carrying with her her Stradivarius, Stradivarius violin. And she refused to leave it behind, even though it was going to be very dangerous to carry it with her. And Pino became so terribly frustrated with her and with the group. 
and they had every disaster that could possibly happen along the way. The woman did not have the physical strength to make this trip, and she sat down and refused to go forward, and they told her, you absolutely must go. And then she slipped off the mountain, and they had to rescue her rescue her as she dangled in midair, and then they were covered in an avalanche, and they thought this was the end, but they dug their way out, and they found their way down the mountain, and they found another route to get to the border. But the pregnant woman with the violin said, I can't go any further. And so Pino said, I'll carry you on my back It'll be piggyback. You get on. And she said, but what about the violin? And he said, I will hold it in front of me. And he put on skis. And going down the mountain, he had her on his back and the violin balancing in front of him. And they went flying down the mountain. And when finally they reached the Swiss border and he handed this woman over to the next person who would rescue her and carry her to safety, she thanked him and she said, is there anything that I can do for you. And he said, actually there is. You could play for me a song on the violin as we make our way back across the Alps. And she said, anything, name the song. And he told her his favorite song. And for miles, he could hear her playing. And that music hit his heart and it vibrated in his soul. You know, I don't really know what difficult passage is before you and me, but I know that God will carry us through with a stunningly beautiful and seemingly impossible love. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what I do not know is how you and I will respond Right now, you and I, we are like those children in C.S. Lewis's book. We are like the children opening that closet door in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and we are there in our closets, hiding away, keeping ourselves cut off. Will we find the door behind the closet? Will we enter a whole new world? <laughs>